Welcome to Asia Rising, the podcast of La Trobe Asia, where we discuss the news, views, and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. The Association of Southeast Asian Nations, known by the acronym ASEAN, is a political and economic organization formed 49 years ago by like-minded Southeast Asian countries. Over time, the organization has become the most significant force for regional cooperation in East Asia, and recently has adopted ambitious goals of becoming an economically and politically secure community. Through this, it seeks to increase their member states' bargaining power with the rest of the world, in particular with the major powers in the region, China, the US and Japan. But are the lofty aims of ASEAN about to crack under outside pressure? And do the member states have more in common than geographic proximity? Here to discuss the future of the regional organisation is Professor Nick Bisley, Executive Director of La Trobe Asia. Thank you for joining me, Nick. Thanks, Matt. So let's start with what kind of organisation is ASEAN? There's a declared intention to be influential in both economic ways and and political security ways. So what are they trying to achieve and, and is that realistic? Yeah, so ASEAN began life, as you said, 49 years ago, 1967, five member states. Then it was Singapore, Thailand, Indonesia, the Philippines and Malaysia. It's the height of the Cold War. The war in Vietnam is um, really going off after the US escalated their involvement in 1965. Uh, and it's very shortly after, you know, pretty acrimonious bust up between Malaysia and Singapore and conflict between Malaysia, Singapore, Indonesia and the Philippines, post-colonial dust-offs. So it's a, it's a rough time and these countries are sitting there going, we're small, we're pretty poor at this point in time. Most of them are very newly independent and all of them have sort of two big things in common. One is authoritarian political structures, so they're not democracies at all. And all of them are sort of anti-communist in their orientation. So what they try to do is set up, and what they did do, is set up an organisation that kind of provides a international solidarity organisation for authoritarian, post-colonial, mm. anti-communist countries. So make peace with one another so they could then get on with the business of domestic economic development, crucially also trying to avoid getting caught up in Cold War contests. Because you know, if you're Thailand, you're looking across the border and it's not far away where you've got very significant conflict going on and they're acutely aware that they don't want that to happen. So that's what begins. Uh, and over time, you know, it's nearly 50 years old, it's become this feature of the region. It's the longest lived regional organisation in Asia by a long way. It's got a really significant role at the centre of a whole range of cooperative ventures. In fact, it's very active to ensure that it is, in its own terms, in the driving seat of regional cooperation. Because it's a grouping of small countries, uh, relatively small countries, it has always sort of feared being overshadowed by the great powers mm. and very aware of the risk of, you know, if any of these countries are off on their own, their ability to carve out a, a successful path themselves is very, very constrained or potentially quite limited by being caught up in fights between the big powers. It develops, it gets bigger. By the late 1990s, all 10 Southeast Asian countries have joined, so Vietnam, Brunei joins, Cambodia, Laos and Burma, Myanmar join, um, with some, you know, various points of contestation. But what you've got now is a funny situation where the organisation is big and ambitious in one sense and very different from the kind of thing it was when it was established in the 1960s. Because times have changed, it's now got countries polar opposites in terms of their economic welfare. So you've got in Singapore, 
one of the world's richest countries in sort of per capita GDP terms, and in countries like Laos and Cambodia, some of the poorest. Mm. You've got in political systems, Brunei, which is literally an old-fashioned monarchical despotism, vibrant, flourishing democracies in the Philippines and Indonesia. You've got kind of, sort of democracies in Malaysia. You've got hybrid regimes like Myanmar, where you've got sort of semi-democracy, semi-authoritarianism as they're trying to creeping their way out of military rule. Mm. And of course, Thailand is under military dictatorship. So you've got this huge diversity of political systems. You know, if you think back to 67, they were all the same kind, they had the same worldview, and they were all roughly in the same space economically, or same place, kind of yeah. economically speaking. Well, it's hard to not to compare this to the EU as far as, you know, you've got an organisation of countries that share the same aim to some extent. But does ASEAN have any clout to it at all? There's no ASEAN citizenship, so you can't move between borders the political situation of every country seems to be very different. There seems to be competing ideals. There's no united currency. Is it just a figurehead kind of organisation? Yeah, and one of ASEAN's real challenges is that when it was established, it created a bunch of principles about how it was going to operate. And one thing it decided very early on was to steadfastly protect the idea of kind of sovereign independence. So no country would interfere in the affairs of others and that any decision that the group made had to be consensual. That's to say every single member has effectively a veto over decision-making. If you then say what you want to achieve is economic cooperation and integration of a kind of EU variety, whether it's creation of a single market, whether it's a single currency or whatever, then that flies squarely in the face of the idea that you don't interfere in the affairs of others and consensual decision-making. You just can't. You know, those two things are very hard to reconcile. You know, what you've got now is that sort of ambition, but how do we do that in the face of these kind of competing principles? Mm. And they're very jealously protective of these basic ideas, and it's very hard to see compromise on that front. But the organisation does have a curious level of influence because of its longevity and because of its centrality in the diplomacy of all 10 of its members. So all of the 10 members of, of ASEAN take the sort of existence of ASEAN as an organization very seriously. So it means that China, the United States, Japan, to a lesser extent Russia and India, because they're a bit more peripheral in this part of the world, they kind of doff the cap to some degree to ASEAN. Now they don't come in and on bended knee and, and follow exactly what ASEAN wants, but equally they don't just treat ASEAN with complete disregard. You know, in Australia we probably saw this most obviously where in 2008, 2009, then Prime Minister Kevin Rudd had this not bad idea, but the execution was very poor of this idea of an Asia-Pacific community and said we need to get all of the East Asian countries plus India and Russia together at the highest level and talk about all range of matters, whether it's political, military, strategic, economic. Right, so superseding ASEAN really. And ASEAN went ballistic. Rudd then gives this speech in Singapore basically the mayor culpa, I'm sorry, ASEAN is at the centre place. Any further development of institutional organisations in Asia must have ASEAN at the centre. Mm. The other really strong example of one of its offshoots, this is the East Asia Summit, known by the rather unlovely description of the ASEAN plus three, plus three, plus two. Yeah, 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 to, <laughs> um, to involve China to Japan, in, and Japan. And, yeah, and yeah. that Russia and the United States and China and Japan and South Korea and Australia and India are members and have signed up to a set of agreements on ASEAN's terms and the meeting meets after ASEAN meetings. And so ASEAN is able to attract the major powers 
and then says, we will set the tune. But of course, there's this tension between ASEAN being important and let's not forget these new guys that you've brought into the tent are in fact three or four of the world's most important economies. Mm. You can't just push them around. So there's this tension between a kind of organisation that has an influence that's able to attract people, but its capacity to change what they do and get them to commit to sort of things is rather more constrained. So there's some glaring problems that come up even within the member states of, of ASEAN. So what's stopping them from having an influence even within their own borders? I'm thinking here in particular on the, the environmental issues that they want to address but seem powerless to address the human rights abuses in Burma. That's a member state, so they can't even clean up within their own borders, so to speak. Yeah, and I think you've got a basic problem. Let's say if you think about human rights, they have a, a vague charter of rights promotion it's a recent creation. It's very much you know, something to slap on the wall and that's it. And it gets back to that basic point that the members have very different value systems. You know, there's very few countries within ASEAN, probably Indonesia and the Philippines would probably really be the only two, who could hand on heart look at the sort of UN conception of human rights and go, that's for us and that's what we think needs to be protected. Mm. All the others to varying degrees have pretty serious issues with aspects, if not the whole thing. And so getting an organisation to act on something as controversial as human rights in a place like ASEAN is just a non-starter. But if you think about you know, two issues that are not politically controversial like human rights and which all ASEAN states would have an interest in and yet they still can't get any movement on, one is people smuggling and illegal movement of populations more generally, and the other is the environment, climate change and that sort of stuff. And it just gets back to a really basic problems that all international organisations have, which is the members have very different interests and the way in which the decision-making of ASEAN is set up, i.e. consensus, consensus fight, yeah. means forget it. All it takes is one country to go, we don't want that to happen for mm. whatever reason, uh, and it may be very narrow. It might be a, a particular sectional group within one country feels that, action of that kind will disadvantage them. And that can throw a spanner in the works the whole lot. And I think for a lot of countries, what they like about ASEAN is exactly that. You know, it's a low cost. There's very few strings attached to joining and participating in it is exactly what frustrates many. So that countries that want to push along with better economic cooperation or collaboration on the environment find it difficult. Yeah. Well, it's, it's even happening in, again within the member states when it comes to border disputes. Mm -hmm. But let's extend that outwards then. The, the South China Seas. So creating a united response to China and just saying we don't like this isn't something that ASEAN can agree on, is it? Now, ASEAN's got two big problems on this. One is the South China Sea dispute is a dispute between six countries, four of whom are ASEAN members. Three of their four claims, actually all four of them, overlap to some degree so that there's a kind of intramural dispute between ASEAN. So Vietnam's claims, which are very, very expansive, as expansive as China's actually, they just haven't been pushing them as hard, they clash with the Philippines' claims, Malaysia, and with Brunei's claims. You've got that intramural problem. So how do you get a united position? Difficult. And then, of course, what China does is not particularly rocket science, but it looks and goes, hmm, it's consensus decision-making. All we need is one person inside a tent block any coordinated position, which they then have done quite successfully through cultivating poor countries like Cambodia and Laos and Myanmar to put a spanner in the works. So yeah. what ASEAN has done in the past when this flared up in the 90s uh, was to say, okay, we're not going to get a unified ASEAN position on the South China Sea disputes, but what ASEAN can do is promote a way of resolving it 
to say, okay, here's some principles, here's some rules, here's some code of conduct. That's really as far as ASEAN's got. Since China's been much more assertive, particularly since it's been building these artificial islands, ASEAN has become more and more unified, oddly enough. And some people are of the view that the thing that will really get ASEAN together is ultimately China's bullying. Mm. Let's put aside our respective differences, whether you're Philippines and Vietnam, and let's deal with China because that's the, as a group, that's the only way we can offset the huge unevenness of power that's going to be the case if each one of us tries to deal with China. And of course, China's view has been since the 1990s to say, this is not a multilateral dispute. We have a series of disputes with a group of countries. And so we'll deal with the Philippines and we'll deal with Vietnam and we'll deal with Brunei and whoever on a one-on-one basis, of course, giving them a a massive advantage in, in that situation. So one view is China will be the thing that brings ASEAN together and, and cracks the problem. The other view is China's the thing that will break it apart. Mm. The tensions that I was talking about earlier, you know, basically the consensus decision-making and economic cooperation, disputed claims and China and all of this sort of stuff, that it may be the thing that pushes countries of the region to, to move away from the organisation. Uh, and the organisation itself is acutely aware of this. Mm. You know, it, it's very, very sensitive to divided loyalties amongst its membership. And we're entering a really interesting phase in Southeast Asia generally, where not only have you got South China Sea disputes in ASEAN not delivering on its potential, according to many, um, but also Southeast Asian countries are in a really curious spot. You look at the next couple of years in ASEAN and in Southeast Asia more generally, it's politically very difficult. Economically, it's going to be challenging, particularly as the sort of Brexit washout in the global economy and the China slowdown really begins to, to bite and, you know, I think that ASEAN will be entering a period of kind of existential crisis as a result of it. Mm. What happened in their response to China? They released a position, didn't they? And then retracted that position. Yeah, it was a couple of weeks ago. So in early June this year, there was a sort of special meeting of the ASEAN foreign ministers mm. um, and the Chinese foreign minister. And they have these meetings regularly, once or twice a year, and talk about issues. Normally, they're pretty dull, pretty procedural. Uh, they had signaled that they wanted to talk about the South China Sea and sort of begin to just talk about an ASEAN position, the possibilities of it. Um, The Malaysian foreign ministry had drafted a position paper saying that for the first time, ASEAN was going to take a formal line in public. It was concerned with what China was doing as a group. Just concerned. Just concerned. And that steps needed to be taken to reduce the tensions. Just fairly bland, but in the world of diplomacy, where little slight shifts in nuance and words really matter... And this was apparently very uncharacteristically robust, you know, full and frank exchange of views. Uh, And then we don't know exactly who, but we think it was the Malaysians issued the statement by accident. They then had to withdraw it. They couldn't say it was in the name of all the foreign ministers because all the foreign ministers hadn't had it. But of course, once it's out in the electronic age, it's out so you can read it now. Chinese went crazy about it. Uh, And officially there was no formal position, but... In the world of carefully scripted, sort of face-saving, cautious, cautious diplomacy, this represents a real, not a rupture in the China-ASEAN relationship, but certainly sign of a kind of hardening of positions. Um, mm. But it's also a worrying sign because it shows that ASEAN's not able to take the heat out of this. And in fact, if anything, ASEAN's becoming a forum for contestation, not a mechanism for calming things down. Well, so do you, do you see them having a, a credible role then in the in the future of the Southeast Asia, or is the region just not ready for that kind of seriously unifying front? Yeah, it, it's going to need some help, and it's going to need to deliver something in the face of 
pretty serious forces. It's possible that it can because... And it needs to be able to point at something and say, we made a difference here. Yeah, and it needs to have key countries, particularly countries like the Philippines and Indonesia, to continue to channel all of their foreign dealings through it and to provide not just a sort of verbal commitment to ASEAN, but also to drive ASEAN to be able to deliver things that make people feel like it's making the kind of contribution that that it needs to, because essentially the region is becoming much more contested between the major powers. Yeah, it sounds like a lot to ask, really. It is, Um, and particularly when the basic way in which it's been set up is not to be nimble, not to be quick, not to be decisive, but to be kind of tectonic in its movements, and that's not a particularly good mode of operation in the current environment. I mean, there's a tendency to be always pessimistic about ASEAN, but I think the current period is particularly challenging for it, at least since the late 90s when it expanded mm. and quite possibly since its foundation. You know, And I think the broader headwinds in the region are going to continue to provide pretty challenging circumstances. All right. Thanks, Nick. We uh, look forward to your further commentary on ASEAN as we celebrate its 50th birthday party next year. Did you get an invite? Uh, not yet, but yeah, I yeah. think the, the embossed card is winging its way through the ether as we speak. Right, dibs on your plus one. (laughs) You've been listening to Asia Rising, the podcast from La Trobe Asia. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to it on iTunes and SoundCloud. Please leave a review. We love reviews and they help other people find the podcast. You can follow Nick Bisley on Twitter. He's at Nick Bisley. You can follow myself on Twitter. I'm at Nightlight Guy. I'm Matt Smith and thanks for listening.